You're listening to the Geekscape Network. Time to fire up the VCR. This one's my favorite. Welcome to Analog Jones in the Temple of Film. I'm Steve. And I'm Matt. And this week when we're going through our November family-friendly film-a-thon, uh, we're bringing a friend here, and we got Scott. He's returning. Say hello, Scott. Hello. Yeah, we're going through uh, one that you love, so why don't you announce, what do we watch? Uh, we are watching a classic from 1989, Little Monsters. There is nothing under your bed, and I want you to just go to sleep, okay? There was a monster! There are no monsters. If you say there's no monster, then switch rooms with me. Boo. Your lucky night. Imagine a world solely of kids. No teachers, no rules, no homework, no parents. Come on now! I'm a monster, then what do monsters do? Good question. Come on, scare the hell out of her. It's our duty. Come on, stop it! We almost had him. He was becoming one of us. Wake up! Eric's gone. Have you seen him? Do you know where he went? I know where Eric is, but I'm not leaving until I have him. If we're not up before the sun clears the horizon, we turn into monsters. Are you still in? I'm in. Keep an eye out for monsters! Let's blow him away, Brian! No way out! I want my brother! I amaze me. Exactly. Take a walk on the wild side. So this is a movie that I really don't have much of a history behind. Uh, Matt, how about you? you know, I don't have a strong history with this one either. I've seen it. I, I remember renting it uh, in the 90s. There was a video store by my house. They had it, and I think they still had sort of the prominent displays. I think they had like a counter stand and a, and a standee in the video store for it in the early 90s. Uh, so the, you know this was advertised pretty heavily there. So I, I remember renting it there. And then I remember revisiting it maybe, you know, when I was a teenager or early preteen, like 12 or something like that, revisiting it. Those were the only two times that I can remember having seen it before watching it for this, though. Well, it's a good thing we brought someone on who has nostalgia love for it. Scott, what's your history? I was, I think I was seven years old the first time I saw it. And I mean, as a kid, this is just, especially an 80s, 90s kid, you know, before the Internet. You know, we had to have imagination. And to me, this was just a fun, just the perfect movie as as a eight-year-old. I have an eight-year-old to just love. And there is some like spookiness to it as well when you're, when you're you know, kind of that age. But, you know, this to me also, it's in, it, it came out around the same time as like the first Ninja Turtles and uh, you got Home Alone around that era. And, you know, so like all those, to me, it fits in with that mix of childhood nostalgic movies uh that i grew up loving yeah and did you walk around the house making booby traps <laughs> as soon as i saw that in there i go home alone <laughs> question mark i feel like this movie has and maybe we'll address it later this movie has a lot of different films kind of added into it because right when he was making all those booby traps i was thinking home alone but what year did home alone come out 90 this is 89 yeah oh man that's amazing so maybe a lot of other films just were taking from this film or it was just a time period thing too no matt do not sit in the middle (laughs) no i'm not gonna sit in the middle i'm gonna give you other examples here because like this movie also reminded me heavily of one i I just randomly watched recently for halloween reminded me of nightbreed a lot as well like a kid's version of nightbreed uh, with the monsters and the monster world and stuff like that. But Nightbreed also didn't come out till 1990. So this is, you know, again, a year before that, year before Home Alone. Uh, it's the year after Beetlejuice. And we'll talk about the Beetlejuice connections uh, as we get into like the behind the scenes. But it, it again, it doesn't seem like it's ripping off Beetlejuice. It's just 
from churning from like that time. Plus, it feels a little bit like, especially at the end, like Toys, which was around mm. the same time, the Robin Williams movie. I, I, I'm sure as we go on, I'm going to think of other examples of like things from that time that I just feel like it was just plugged in. You know, like Home Alone didn't rip off this movie. Uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry to burst your bubble, but that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, but like, it's just a, a time period thing. I think it was just plugged into like sort of the pop culture interests, and, you know, family movie interests and things like that. Yeah. And how about Lost Boys? I, I felt like a little bit of this like blue, like lights, early 90s look and even Beetlejuice, which will, you know, address all the comparisons in that one. Yeah, there's something about this late 80s, early 90s blue shadows. Yeah, of course, like Lost Boys, because it's doing like a Peter Pan thing. But again, Lost Boys was only two years before this. So is it just plugged in again to like what the interests are? Getting into this, did you guys ever, you know, walk around and say the tagline of some friends can be real monsters and some monsters can be real friends? (laughs) (laughs) Every time I read that tagline, too, it's like it's not a tongue twister. It's just really weird to say. (laughs) Yeah, that is, it is. It's like, a, it's almost like a, a mind twister, not a tongue twister. Yeah, it's like, but, and what I noticed was that tagline is nowhere on this VHS slipcover I have. That's hilarious. Describing the box art here. Am I the only one with a VHS on this? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's, it's bright. I can tell you that much. It's got like the red background with, I don't know, like the monster city in the background, but you can't actually tell what it is. Mm-hmm. It's very odd. And then you've got Fred Savage and Howie Mandel, you know, in yellow at the top. And I love this, like, neon blast of colors. You know, you've got the green neon little monsters, all lowercase. And some prick named Chrissy Kelliker wrote her name on this copy that I have. (laughs) F.U. Why do you write it on the front? Now, I've seen people write it on the actual VHS, like, label inside, which would make more sense because, you know... You could just steal this movie and throw away the slipcover. You still have the movie. You put it on the actual VHS. Okay. But when you put it on the front cover, what's wrong with you, kid? Okay. No one else has had that. No opinion on that. Let's move on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't have, I, I, I don't even have VHS. You're a terrible person. <laughs> no, I get it. Uh, normies don't. And it makes sense because they're freaking huge and heavy. <laughs> they're hard to store. <laughs> they're a bitch to move. Yeah. So on the back here, we've got some, all of them are screenshots, which I noticed, maybe one production still. At the top left, we've, you know, got little Fred Savage uh, with a, like a red light on him, looking a little terrified, not quite fully scared, but you know, he's definitely uh, shocked. And then we've got him and Howie yelling at each other, having fun when they were doing all their shenanigans. Then I noticed on this one, there's a smaller one to the right. Where there is an American flag in the background of them two, Howie Mandel and Fred Savage standing together. It's tiny and confusing. I don't know if someone like an intern just picked that or something. Like why, you know, America saturated background. Why? Oh, that was a weird one. Yeah, I mean, there's the one scene in the movie where they do the thing with the flag and say, you know. And it's like a a bit thing. But yeah, is it just, is it just, did they put it on the back to like get into like the Reagan era uh, 80s here? <laughs> Making a political statement about the Reagan to Bush era. It's like, that seems like an odd movie to make that choice. Yeah, right. <laughs> I choice little monsters, but yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the very bottom is the boy character mm-hmm. looking very menacing with, I think, Fred Savage's little brother in the background on like a dartboard. Oh, yeah, the dartboard scene. That's mm-hmm. what that is. Okay, so our description here. Suppose you proved there really were monsters under your bed. And what if you suddenly found yourself journeying through one of them into the very strange world? Into their very strange world. That's what happens to Fred Savage, the Wonder Years, the Princess Bride, when he meets Maurice. Howie Mandel, a hyperkinetic, wild, wacky, and hip monster. His bizarre under-the-bed world is everything a boy could want. No parents, no homework, all the junk food you can eat. Brian Savage learns how monsters come up under any kid's beds and uses this ability to pay back the school bully. But there's a catch. Brian soon gets trapped in a frightening nightmare that is all too real. And then there's a quote right in the middle of the description here. A special effects extravaganza from the LA Times. The Hollywood Reporter praised Little Monsters for having 
the contours and renaissance of a kid's classic, a film that confronts childhood fears in a concrete, colorful, and credible way, a crackerjack story. There you go. There's your description. 1989, one hour and 43 minutes. Oh, wow. You know, an hour, 43 minutes. I guess this would have been more around like 80 minutes or 90 minutes. Seems like it has pretty good pacing. Yeah, movie flies for how long it is for a kid's movie. Unless you hate this movie and then you just quit halfway through it like Sarah did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who I can tell you probably is the strongest response I've seen to her, have you know, to watching a movie in quite a long time where she gets up about... I'd say about 30 minutes into this, she goes, I can't do this and goes and reads. That's like the ultimate insult to a movie. I would rather read a book. <laughs> I think that I think that's a testament to Mr. Howie Mandel's performance in this movie, yeah. because I feel like that was probably the deal breaker. <laughs> yeah, it turns out he likes cocaine quite a bit. Uh-huh. <laughs> but come on, you know, that baseball baseball card scene is is like one of my all time favorite lines when he. You, you guys, you know what I'm talking about when he baseball cards. I love baseball. Need him, need him, got him, got him, need him, need him. I oh, love it. Boo. <laughs> Keep an eye out for monsters. <laughs> scream, scream. Good idea. You know what? You scream, your dad's going to come in here with a 12 gauge shotgun. Boo, blow your head off. Actually, I'll scream. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Actually, Dad's gonna come in here and find Dorito puke all over the floor. What's he gonna say, huh? Wow! Baseball cards. I love baseball cards. Got him, got him, need him, got him, got him, got him, need him, got him, need him, need him, got him, got him, got him, got him, need him. <laughs> there are a couple scenes, especially that one, when he first burst onto the scene. Wow. I don't know what the director told him or, you know, what he took beforehand, but... He definitely had it an 11. I think he was trying to like break it to go to a 12 or, or a hundred. I don't know. I would worry about his heart. <laughs> <laughs> and and for, according according to him too, according to how I Mandel and like the bonus features that I watch on this, this is based, uh, his character Maurice in this is based on his stand-up act at the time. So if you were to see uh, Howie Mandel's set in 1989, this is similar to what it would look like. <laughs> yeah, I haven't watched a lot of Howie Mandel's stand-up. Have you guys? No. no. Yeah, me neither. So I'll take his word for it. <laughs> is there is there any history that they explain in the documentary as to who they were selecting for Maurice? Like, was it, it I just have a hard time thinking it was always Howie Mandel. Yeah, it sounds like it came to him as like a, you know, vehicle for him. I think they were trying to get him in movies because his stand up was taking off and he was becoming popular item so i don't i don't think it was necessarily written for him because it sounds like this was like a purchase script but it was they hunted him down for this yeah so Vestron's like we gotta have howie mandel he's big he's huge he's gonna hit the uh hollywood circuit and all i remember him for is okay i knew he was gizmo in gremlins and gremlins too but you know that's not a big part no one actually knew except nerds like me that he was gizmo but bobby's world is what i know him mm-hmm. from yeah right and this seems weirdly kind of similar too to little monsters in bobby's world there's definitely connections as well yeah i could see that i mean he had a good voice for animation yeah i think uh, for me the thing that i think howie mandel will always be remembered for is bobby's world Yeah, and, and also, don't forget, he did a lot of voices for Muppet Babies. Muppet <laughs> really? Babies. Yeah, he was Skeeter and a couple. He was Animal, Skeeter, and a, I don't know, whoever else. I just remember, because I've actually seen something on actors who do animated voices, and he was actually on there uh, talking about Bobby's World and also all the voices that he did on Muppet Babies, and it just blew my mind, because I was like, what? <laughs> I don't know when I watched that documentary. That was a long time ago. But, you know, I'm sure no one else has seen it because who the hell sits down and goes, oh, sweet documentary on animated voices. I'm there. I mean, me and you would watch that. Yeah, yeah. Not many other. So what's you guys ready to pop this tape in and get into the trailers? Let's do it. 
Now playing at a motion picture theater near you. Okay, here we go. So we only have two. Oh, I did notice right when this comes on, it says MGM UA Home Video. And that stands for Universal, or no, it's Universal Artists, United Artists, that's it. Uh, I haven't seen that one in a while. I don't I don't think the, I mean, there's always been, well, not always, but lately it's been under the MGM umbrella, like within the last 30 years or whatever, and I just mm-hmm. don't think they use it anymore. You know, it's like TriStar with Sony. Oh yeah, the old TriStar ones, or the CBS Fox. Yeah, they're all gone. But we had all dogs go to heaven. Uh, how did you, how much did you guys watch this as kids? I didn't. I didn't really watch this one. I didn't. That wasn't one that was in heavy rotation for me. How about you, Scott? I was thinking, is that the is that the spaghetti, the Disney? But that's Lady and the Tramp. Nah, this is this was a girl and her dog. Dog dies, and it's about getting him back and stuff like that. So. Yeah, I watched this one a decent amount as a kid, mostly because my grandma had it. So if it had dogs in an animation, my grandma always bought it. I mean, All Dogs Go to Heaven, uh, definitely Lady and the Tramp. I watched that, and I'm uh, Fox and the Hound. <laughs> Basically, she's just like, I'll buy you any animation that has a dog in it. Well, now you're an expert on a specific subgenre of animation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, Thanks, I know grandma. Do- dog animation's pre-2000. Yeah. I got him. <laughs> <laughs> the next thing is really what... I want to talk about because this is fascinating. And we had these in the early 90s. Think Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. We got a monster hotline that has the entire like two minute promo has a monster rap. The little monster's movie is about to begin. But before it does, I'm going to fill you in. Want to win some super prizes when you're not alone? Because the fun's as close as your telephone. I am for monsters. I'm your five cents a minute for a game. you call 1-989 Maurice it's 95 cents a minute and remember kids you know ask your parents first get your parents permission <laughs> i don't know what this is for other than you know bullshit prizes and making a little extra money cuz i at least with bill and ted it was a trivia game where you win prizes was there any game with this so they don't explain it in like the monster rap commercial but like the blu-ray also has the screener promo that was on like the screener tapes uh when this came out and it explains it better in that and in that it says that the standees the posters and the different things at the video store have clues on them and then you call in and you have the clues and then you know you put you know i don't know if it's trivia or if it's like a some sort of problem solving thing or whatever you use those clues you got from the video store to then be entered for the grand prize. Oh, wow. You watched it uh, a lot better than I did. (laughs) Well, no, I'm saying there was a screener uh, commercial on the Blu-ray as well that explained it better than the monster rap did. (laughs) Yeah, because I I was kind of in shock watching it. I was like, what the hell? (laughs) As soon as I saw 95 cents a minute, you know, I'm glad. I mean, kids have a lot of other ways to spend money nowadays, too, but that just seems like a terrible idea. And I'm so glad my brothers and I never tried that shit. I never got into any of those phone things either. I mean, I, 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 mm-hmm. I'm i a little younger, so I kind of missed some of it. It was mostly in the early 90s. But like, I never called in any of them. I never wanted to. I never had any interest in those. <laughs> yeah, my brothers and I never did the Nintendo Power Hotline either. I, I don't I guess we were just good kids or, you know, we didn't want to piss off our parents. Running up them phone bills. <laughs> Did you ever call any of those, Scott? Nope. I never got into any of that either, at least that I can remember. I mean, there's, but may, I mean, who knows? Maybe I did, but I just kind of put it out my mind. I don't know. I probably as a kid, I was probably just thinking that, that it's just, you know, part of the movie somehow, you know, I even like as if it's a, a thing that you needed to call. It's like, oh, look at this. This is probably just like a fun little teaser to the movie. This is actually being something you could physically do you know let's get into the feature presentation and now our feature presentation uh i got a lot of questions hopefully you guys can answer them (laughs) you know they're moving to a suburb in boston Uh, their parents are having a hard time you know you see all the conflict there and so the peanut butter and onion sandwich kind of physically made me ill looking at it what why why 
There's my first question. Why? <laughs> Wasn't there something when you were uh, his age, though, that was like kind of weird that you loved to eat? You know, like not that. <laughs> not that, but <laughs> that's really extreme. I don't know what they're trying to do with it. Like to me, he doesn't seem like a weird kid. So I didn't know if they were trying to like set up that he's, you know, kind of a little bit of an outcast. Yeah, it'd be like a monster food. Like that's something you could see Maurice eating. You know, <laughs> you know, maybe it's just a way to tie in uh, that he's as goofy as these future creatures you're about to meet. You know, maybe. Yeah, I think you're right on the money. Actually, <laughs> I think you're right on the money. Gross. <laughs> Yuck. Uh, yeah, and then uh, he, you know, we get introduced to some of the kids that he knows, his friend at school, and everything. And I think the girl was someone new he was meeting. Because was this a new school? I didn't catch that. Yes, he's he is at a new yeah. school. He just mm-hmm. moved. He's kind of feeling. He is feeling like an outcast, even though he is kind of a normal kid. But then, yeah, definitely starts a friendship with this girl who's sort of like his schoolboy crush. Yeah, and then we get you know Buzz in there, which as soon as I mm-hmm. saw him, I was like, Buzz, you're in other yeah. movies. <laughs> yeah. Now is he otter looking in this one? Or in Home Alone. Home Alone. Come on. I mean, they try to like dress him up nice in Home Alone. It just doesn't fit him. I feel like the whole long hair, you know, just punk. I feel like that's more suited for for Buzz than, than, you know, more so I think for Home Alone 2, you know, when he's the the, all the church in the beginning, the church scenes and all that, you know, or the school choir scenes, how like nice he is that I'd much rather see Buzz in this light than that light. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. I, I mean, uh, he did make me kind of giggle in this, but mostly it was a nostalgia giggle. I mean, what happens to him, I don't think is fair, but I do like their fight. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about ha- what happens to that poor kid. I mean, <laughs> not many people deserve that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we somehow we get into like he's he's eating the peanut butter and onion sandwich and you know, he's starting to get blamed. Now, he did do that, but he's also starting to get blamed for other things throughout the house. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, no, it must have been my little brother. And of course, the parents aren't going to believe him. Like, go to your room. Stuff like that. Blames his little brother. or You know, he's like, it must have been him. And of course, he gets sent to his room. Now, I don't remember how quite we got into the booby traps, but I was pretty impressed with what he was doing to capture the monster under the bed that his brother says is attacking him at night. Anyone remember how that happened? For, yeah, he first has like a, a, like, there's the scene where, what's his, Ben, Ben Savage? Is that the uh, Boy Meets World Kid? What's his name? <laughs> no, it's Boy Meets World Kid. That's actually his official name. His, his real name? Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, ben, yeah, Ben Savage. He has like, he gets scared in the middle of the night. He has like a moment where he sees something and, He's convinced and he's littler. He's uh, younger than Fred Savage. So besides like the, you know, ice cream falling on Daniel Stern in the the beginning or him running over the bike or whatever, the sort of little things that Maurice is doing throughout the house. Yeah. Then he scares the brother, which then leads to Fred Savage staying in his brother's room because he's going to try to catch him. And that's when he sets up all these kind of booby traps with like Doritos, uh, perfect uh, product placement there. Um, and all the uh, clothes traps and stuff. So, uh, you know, it's a little home alone here. Yeah, and now I remember it was the I double down bet, something like that, a double or nothing. I, I dare you to spend the entire night in your room alone. Is that what right. it was? Right, he, he does it, he does it, and then he sees something then too, and then so he's like, double or nothing, I'm going to do another night, I'm mm-hmm. going to catch this guy. All right, now it's coming back. Yeah, and so he sets it up, and then he captures Maurice, and then, you know, once he meets Maurice, it's just, crazy i've never seen someone do this much now obviously we saw michael keaton as as beetlejuice but there is this one is at a different level yeah uh absolutely it's just it's howie mandela and his best and i guess worse uh (laughs) you know tendencies just like cranked up dialed up bouncing off the walls crazy i i'm not gonna accuse him of being on a coke because i don't know but it's just it's the 80s so <laughs> you, know, you know it's it's that like sort of ultra charged performance you know like a like beetlejuice on a hundred or like a robin williams at this time kind of performance yeah and i was looking back too at holly mandel's uh career i guess and i was looking at his acting career and i want to say that this was only his 
excluding voices and, and all that, I think this was only his third role, but all the other, like this was his main first role, like where he was the guy. So it almost like maybe he's using that as adrenaline to, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm just curious if that like played a part into how just absolutely insane he was. I also want to point out too, how clever going back just a, a step, how clever the trap was to, well, to trap him in the room for that Fred Savage did. Yeah. I mean, the trapping of the room, did anyone get like this weird feeling that like he just watches Maurice melt to his, he, what he thinks is his death. Like he's like, just put me underneath the bed and he's melting, you know, into clothes. And I was like, he didn't even like pull him underneath until he was fully dead. <laughs> I was like, damn dude. Like, I don't like monsters either, but if I saw a monster suffering, you know, maybe I want to, Help the monster out a little bit. He didn't. He just sat there. And he's like, if, uh, <laughs> bye. Well, also, too, would it, if you were in his shoes, would you be? I don't know. I, I probably would. have. Oh, if I was in his shoes and I saw a monster like that pop out of my bed, I would have ran out that fucking door so fast. Like, no, uh-uh. uh-huh. there's no way. <laughs> so I could see that, you know, Brian was paralyzed with fear. I just thought it was funny as the movie choice that they let the kid just have Maurice kind of die. I mean, that's what I would have think as a kid. That would have freaked me out as a kid, and I really don't remember it. Yeah, I think I, I think I would have actually though. At, you know, as a kid, behaved the same way because it's like I'm getting in trouble for shit that this guy's doing. So <laughs> we yeah. gotta eliminate him. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I, I get that too. But you know, at least there, like, you should have had him like, ha, that's what you get for getting me in trouble or something like that. But the kid has Brian has no line. He just watches it like. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it's kind of funny. And uh, eventually, I guess he comes back because his clothes start talking. And I do like all the effects that they're pulling off in this. This is really cool in-camera effects that I love. Pay homage to the movie as a whole, the production uh, design, the special effects. And and the director himself was a guy, Richard Thornburg, I believe. He he worked on Predator, too, as a special effects. So, I mean, and a bunch of other movies. Um, yeah, I think, to your point, Steve, the all the effects, especially for in 89, were great. They were they were excellent. That's one thing. If you get a visual effects guy leading their leading the movie as a director, you almost always have something great for the eyeballs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was this is a totally like an interesting case where like the director, you know, coming from effects and specifically he did the title treatments for a lot of movies. So like the title cards and like the opening credits mm-hmm. for movies. He designed one. So he's got an eye. So you've got that. And then you've got the effects team from Beetlejuice doing all the creatures. So you've got that. And then like for the clothes, they brought in a team that did like, and I don't really remember these, but they talked about them in the documentary. This team that did these commercials with talking clothes that were in the 80s. So like they brought them in to kind of make the the clothes move and stuff like that. So they've kind of got all these creative minds, visual people, you know, Beetlejuice being one of like the biggest creature movies of the late 80s, specifically the way like the clothes move when they're when they're just clothes. Um, and then you have a super visual director. I just think it was kind of a nice alchemy, you know, of all these things. And we start to see that be highlighted in this er, in this early part of this movie when we first meet Maurice and we see the clothes moving. Um, it really, like, the, the imagination really kicks off here. To your point about all that is it's also a fun story. Most of, A lot of times you just get one or the other. Great effects, terrible story. Or, you know, vice versa. And I think it's it applies this all around. It's, it's good great effects and and just a fun story as well now that we've mentioned beetlejuice a couple times i guess we can just hammer away the comparisons matt you were saying that beetlejuice or this was before beetlejuice well it wasn't before uh beetlejuice just hadn't come out yet when they started filming this so beetlejuice came out in 88 and they started filming this in 88 so it just it hadn't even come out but howie mandel had gotten a lot of comparisons to Beetlejuice in his performance and he even says in the documentary he goes Michael Keaton was a comedian too we were up for a lot of the same roles in the 80s Mm -hmm. it was just it was just you know that was their bits and that was what they were up for so they both were offered a ton of stuff that was kind of like this so that's you know where that comes from and then you also with having those effects people that did all the work on Beetlejuice a lot of the stuff is gonna look Similar, and I don't think the monsters in this look any you know, similar to like Smoking Guy or Shrunken Head Guy and Beetlejuice or anything like that. They're different enough, but I think 
having all those kind of you know rogues gallery of monsters uh, i think it it drew kind of the comparisons and they were coming out at the same time but they all say in the, in all the documentaries uh and all all the featurettes on the blu-ray that like the beetle just wasn't even out yet so yeah. they didn't know but the but the reason you know it feels that way is the all the effects people they brought on all the same people that all worked together on beetlejuice it was just it worked there so when they moved over to this show they just brought their whole team over and they knew what they were doing and you know people were excited about beetlejuice and insiders knew you know kind of like the uh, effects work that were going to be on display in that movie but like that movie actually hadn't even come out yet so it wasn't like they were just ripping it off yeah, I wonder if both of these guys were more like trying to have their Pee Wee Herman character. Probably. Because that came out, you know, he had been doing that shtick for a long time. But then he got the movie that came out, I believe, in 87, 86, 86. So you look at that as Michael Keaton and as Howie Mandel. You're like, wow, man. I mean, he's just doing his thing on camera. Why? Why can't I do that? And they're, you know, you've got Michael Keaton and Howie Mandel both going out for the same roles. So I imagine both of them were doing the same things for both characters. The big difference is Tim Burton is really good at crafting a story along with bringing in people for visuals. So he knew how to take that Beetlejuice character and tone him down. Not so much in toning him down on screen, but taking him down in the amount of minutes. Hey, the guy who's trying to do 110%, let's just put him on camera 18 minutes. In this movie, they're like, the guy who's doing 110 minutes, let's put him on camera 60 minutes. Probably not the best idea. That's a good scenario because Mandel on the documentary, is, as Matt was saying, was him and Keaton were competing and the whole Pee Wee Herman thing, uh, Pee Wee's Great Adventure was to Burton. And I'm sure they then for Beetlejuice, I'm sure they both, I mean, there's probably a good chance they both auditioned for that. I mean, I don't know personally. I mean, you guys would know better than I would, but uh, I think that's a good point that why the characters seem to be very similar is because they prepping for the same roles, essentially. And I think I think to to your point from earlier, Scott, I think this was this was going to be a vehicle then for uh, Howie like this was going to be his, you know, you said it was like his third role. This was going to be him front and center doing his shtick. You know, this what a better sort of basically the title character of this. He's the head of the monsters that we see in the movie or whatever. So like he this was his thing. This was his movie he was going to do, you know, mm-hmm. like. Like when Keaton had Beetlejuice, Pee Wee Herman had his movie. Like this was going to be his thing. Yeah, definitely. And talking about other things that he did that kind of surprised me was the uh, cat food in the tuna fish sandwich and then pissing in the apple juice bottle. (laughs) Yeah, this one, this one rides a line. I feel like where it's like it's a little harder edged for kids than uh, typical PG stuff from this time or whatever. This is a little... It's a little grosser. It's a little rougher. It's a little more sexual. Like there's there's a lot of like stuff that Howie Mandel says that's like super questionable. Like uh, yeah. it's a it's a little bit rougher of a of a PG movie than I I think I was expecting it to be. But then then again, when I was watching this in the '90s, I was so desensitized to that chick because it was everywhere in all our kids' movies at the time. I guess, but like yeah, I was just surprised watching it now. Yeah, I mean, after watching Beetlejuice, you know, Pee Wee's you know, Big Adventure and everything like that. Yeah, it, there was something where we were kind of just getting used to it. But looking back, the pissing in the apple juice bottle surprised me. So gross. Because that just feels like something that like moms would go after. I don't know if yeah. they did, but I assume they did. I don't know. They probably didn't because nobody saw this movie. <laughs> oh, good point. Yeah, <laughs> nobody saw it until video. <laughs> to to that point, Matt, too, for it being a nostalgia thing, I remember watching this movie with that very scene. I remember being worried that siblings were going to try to pull these pranks. You know, I, I was the youngest in in my house. You see these scenes, and then you kind of like tiptoe around a house, make sure that you don't, you know, piss anyone off. So that, uh, no pun intended, uh, so that <laughs> none of that, none of that comes back to you. So that, from a nostalgia point, it, it, you know, Steve, be fortunate with your with your brothers that you didn't see this movie when you were that young, because I'm sure they could have gotten some ideas if you if you made them upset. Yeah, I'm kind of glad that my mom never bought this for us. I think we possibly rented it. I just really don't remember this really sticking with us as kids. 
I, I guess when it came to our comedians doing outrageous stuff, we just stuck with Beetlejuice. You know, we went that direction. Oh, like we weren't even big into Pee Wee Herman. I remember watching it a little bit as a kid, but really not that much. I don't know what it was. I think we were just into wrestling too much. That took our wrestling and sports with our uh, monster films. And, you know, you only have so much time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. When we get into it, uh, the, you know, they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, you know, shredding the girl that he likes, uh, like report. Mm-hmm. I, I was I was like, damn. But I, I think what really I mean, it even pushes the kid too far is when they go to like terrify the newborn baby, which is like a big thing for the monsters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was definitely a scene where I was like, man, this is dark. I What were they going to do with the baby? They weren't going to eat it, were they? No, I think they just, they like the, the scare. You know, kind of like the, the Monsters, Inc. thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I think they just start going after the scare and what pure terror you can get from, like, a newborn, a child. Yeah. But I, I like this scene because I think it pushes the movie. It, yes, like you're saying, it's like, oh, that's kind of fucked up. But, like, you kind of need it to be to, like, sort of have the reality snap in for the fred savage character Mm -hmm. to be like okay this is wrong you know i shouldn't be doing this or whatever so i think the weight of that even though it is kind of a dark scene and it is kind of messed up for a kid i think it's necessary to push forward in like a positive way um where you know and and it sets us up then for the you know the later thing the very monster squad meets toys kind of ending with boy and stuff like that yeah but i think like you gotta pull back and think about this now, Beetlejuice made sense why it was so, you know, why it worked so well. It wasn't for kids. Kids, wa- we watched it, but I think it was more like for young adults, which then kids latched on to. Because that's the same thing with horror movies, you know, like with the Nightmare on Elm Streets and stuff like that. It was for young adults, but because it was so cool with them, kids watched it. And I think Beetlejuice kind of follows into that. You know, we talked about in Beetlejuice where it was a nice like transition from those type of characters from Chucky's and all that, where it was made for, you know, people in their twenties on dates to see. And then it like spread to us being younger, uh, mostly talking about Scott and I, cause Matt was more of a nineties kid, but with this one, you know, other than not saying that you didn't get into Freddy cause you absolutely did. Uh, <laughs> but with this one, like if you're making it specifically for kids, I think you went way too dark. And if this really would have hit a lot of theaters, because I know this was, you know, during Vestron just going bankrupt and this like saw 150 theaters or something like that and made didn't even make a million dollars on a seven million dollar budget. Ouch, that is a bomb. But I think you got to pull back a little bit. And if this would have went into theater, there's too much here or you just are writing a line that's too far. It's not really for anyone. It's not truly for kids. It's not truly for, you know, uh, you can't take a date to this. Who's going to, you know, like be, you know, around college and everything like, hey, babe, you want to go see Little Monsters? Fuck no. It's it's was tailored towards kids. I think this is a bad job of marketing and a bad job of storytelling in the fact that who are you going to sell this to? I think, you know, like, yes, they're trying to kind of have, like you're saying, they're, they're cake and eat it too, where they're having kind of a harder edge, you know, thing for, yeah, adults, teens, college kids, whatever, but also for kids. But I think more so this movie, and I think this is maybe just why it didn't transfer and really become like a hit until video later, was I think it was kind of made specifically for kids like us. That like this is a kids movie, but it's gonna have a lot of weird stuff and spooky stuff and monster stuff and crazy stuff and gross stuff. Like it was kind of made for like an audience like us who wanted kids stuff at the time, but something that pushed it a little further. But like those movies don't tend to make money; they do tend to be found later when those audiences re us uh, see them uh, when they do eventually come out on TV, video, and stuff like that. So, like, I just, I think, I don't, I don't feel like this is one of those cases where it's totally having their cake and eating it, too. I do feel like they were trying to make a kid's movie for kids who like weird stuff. (laughs) And sometimes, you know, that just doesn't make money in theaters. It's not mass market stuff. If any of that made any sense. (laughs) 
It's the same thing with Monster Squad. I loved that as a kid, but did it hit the you know normies of the world? No. That's why it's a cult classic. And I think this is writing the same thing with the cult classic. It's just you're not you're not hitting the big market. You're hitting a like little acute, you know, target in the market. It's not a good way to make money. Uh, and I, I think they learned the hardest way possible. by. I don't know if this movie put him bankrupt. Vestron was having a lot of financial problems before this, but this was definitely the nail in the coffin. Yeah, I think the the ball was already rolling on this movie as like it started to kind of as like the collapse was imminent. So they had the seven million dollars to get it made, but then they just didn't have anybody to take it over the the end line here. Yeah, and MGM's like, oh man, what are we gonna do with this? Eh, stick in a few theaters, <laughs> put it out on video. Now I think this is a cult classic in a way, not a huge one, but a little one. I guarantee you, there's little monster fans like Scott out there who watch it as a kid. The thing is, is you got to hit the ones, the collectors, you know, because Scott likes this as a, you know, a, something that he watches as a kid, but he's not a collector. So you've got an even smaller market where you got to hit the mats of the world. Yeah, I, I just I, it, it, for me, the, I just like it from the standpoint of the imagination part. Like you said, I'm not a collector. I, I love the story. And it took me years to just a month ago when I rewatched it, it took me that long to realize how similar Monsters Inc. was to this. And I loved Monsters Inc.'s my favorite Pixar movie. You know, and, and it makes total sense now why, because I, I just love just the idea of this monster world and, and the teleporting between the worlds, whatever you want to call it. From that standpoint, it's more of just an artsy imagination film. Yeah, I, I would say it's a cult classic, but like there was a tier of cult, cult classics. I would say this is at the bottom for sure. I agree. I agree 100% with this. Like, It's totally a cult classic. It it has crossed over beyond just sort of like the, the video market that it did well in. It, it has had some lasting fans. I think it's growing. I think more people are finding the movie. I don't think it's ever going to reach like a level of like a Monster Squad or Beetlejuice or something that will Beetlejuice has crossed over into entire like classic territory. But like, I don't think it's ever going to reach those levels, but it has it has already amassed fans and, you know, the Vestron release that they just put out on Blu-ray this year, like a, a couple months ago, I think signifies that. Like, I don't think they would have put it out if there wasn't an interest there. So I think it, it is it is it, a lower tier cult classic, but it is it has gone on to become a cult classic. And I do think it is because of the imagination. And I do think it is people that have heard about it after watching and loving the Monsters, Inc. and University movies. I think uh, I think it's kind of known that this is probably the thing that Pixar ripped off for uh, for those movies. And I like those movies a lot, too. So I'm not super, I'm not super critical of that. I'm critical of Pixar because they rip off everything, but um, the uh, I still like those. It doesn't mean that I don't like those movies, though. I think Monsters University is like my favorite Pixar, one of my favorite Pixar's. The imagination of it, I think, is the thing that keeps it going. And all those creatures and all those monsters and sort of being in that world, that monster world and all that cool stuff. I mean, it it, it lights your you up as a child if you see it, but then when you're watching it as an adult. You see all the kind of the work that went into it. And you're mm -hmm. like, holy shit, this is impressive. Like, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I think that adds to the charm of it as well. Yeah. And I think you're right. Lionsgate wouldn't have spent all that time coming up with a movie and a documentary and everything like that if they didn't think the Vestron library that they own, if this wouldn't sell to collectors. So I thought that was cool. Uh, when you told me about that, I looked up everything in the Vestron collection that Lionsgate's done and I'm impressed. Uh, another thing that impressed me were the bad guys in this <laughs> film, because going straight into that, Rick Ducommon, is that his name that played mm -hmm. Schnick? Snick, yeah. First of all, I had no idea that was him until about halfway during the film. He said something and I go, who is that guy? I know him. <laughs> I've seen him. And he's like, oh, holy shit. It's the friend from suburbs or the burbs. I'm sorry. Uh, and, you know, Groundhog's Day and everything. So. Mm -hmm. Good job from him. Uh, it's it's crazy that makeup. He's a terrifying bad guy, mm -hmm. and he's smoking the whole time. This smoky like presence that he has, and when he pops the kid's head off, <laughs> that was another scene where I'm like, "Holy yeah. shit, movie!" You're scared of me, aren't you, Arnold? Oh, I like that. Oh, I love that. But you know what? I like even more than that, Arnold. 
taking my two big black leather gloved hands and grabbing your head and cutting it off. <laughs> I mean, if there was a dark, if there was a dark kids movie, like you know, there's dark comedies and whatnot. If there was like a dark kids genre movie i mean th this would fit right in with it with you know scaring the baby uh popping the kid's head off you know pissing in the in the drink you know stuff like that yeah th this movie is a no holes bar for kids like it's just like all right kids we're gonna put you through the grinder we're gonna show you what the the real world's like and you're like uh maybe we should try more of like adventures in babysitting grit <laughs> yeah. instead of like whatever we're doing here like this is a little much yeah, instead of like uh, another, like to take it a step further, like Boy, who is like basically this movie's leather face, where uh -huh. he's got like a child's face stretched over his like monster face. Yeah. Like, are you kidding me? It's terrifying. And Frank Wally's performance is so crazy. He's so creepy in this movie. Yeah, Boy's nuts. Brian. Let's make a deal. It's your wits and grace that I desire. Not those of your pugnacious chum or even your silly mute little girlfriend. I'll let them all go. And your brother. If you'll stay and be my pal. Yeah, the real bad guy in all this. And especially his lair, which is upstairs. Uh, I know there's some kind of symbolism there about going upstairs. I don't quite know what it is. And then, you know, he's acting over the top. And I, I love Boy, uh, the actor who plays Boy, though. I just suddenly forgot his name. Frank Wally. I mean, he's been acting forever. Mm -hmm. He's in so much. Oh, he's, yeah, he's one of my favorite character actors. Every time he shows up in something, he's great. Yeah, he is. Always gives it his all. Uh, and that's probably why he keeps getting jobs. I mean, he's just a really good character actor who, and in this role, he blends into. Yeah. I didn't even know who it was at first until I worked him up. Perfect casting. Yeah, perfect casting for this. So, I mean, this definitely got him a lot of jobs because he's comfortable working in makeup. Always good for a character actor. Uh, I don't know if he did any more makeup roles. <laughs> Some of them, you know, just say, nope, never doing this again. <laughs> Too much fucking work. Too hard. Which Howie Mandel did. He was like, I'm never doing anything like this again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all that work that he did putting on the makeup and everything like this, and then you don't get any credit. In fact, people probably like discredited him because they're like, oh, nice job trying to be a Beetlejuice. And he's like, no, we didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I wore those damn horns and all you kids are making fun of me. Uh, yeah, we didn't even address that. So they get the horns for being in the sunlight. Yeah, I think he's just in the world. You know, it's like a reaction to being in the other world for too long where it's like it doesn't kill him it's not like the sun melts him or whatever it's like he is changing in the same way that like fred savage after he starts spending too much time in the underworld he's his arm starts to disappear mm -hmm. so i think it's that same thing he's spending too much time in the real world so he's like mutating <laughs> yeah and how about another thing where i think they go a bit too far is after they escape well the dartboard scene uh, that one okay that's i kind of thought that was fine pushing it there some people might disagree with me because you don't want like the older brother putting a kid at a dartboard and throwing <laughs> darts at him. But I just thought the one that I was shocked as it's, you know, they shrink him down. They shrink uh, Maurice down, put him underneath the crack in the door. He lets him out. But then Maurice burns Schnick basically to death with a flamethrower. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know if he was supposed to be dead there. I, I don't remember if they showed like a corpse or anything, but that's what he does. He just takes a fucking flamethrower at him. I'm like, whoa, movie. Wow. <laughs> well, you see, in the 80s, we eliminated our bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> There's no chance of a sequel. <laughs> it's not like today where we're like, we got to be better than them. We got to put them away. You know, we got to make them learn their lesson. Back in the 80s, we just... Oh, nuked him. <laughs> <We> just... <laughs> That's how we took care of our bad guys in movies, especially kids movies. <laughs> yeah. Eliminate them. <laughs> no one's going to be begging for a sequel of this because we can't. Uh, we killed them. <laughs> Not coming back. Uh, other than they could put a Friday the 13th spin on it. Yeah, I know. We sliced his head off and whatnot, but he's fine. <laughs> he's a zombie now. I mean... 
There's no rules in the monster world. But finally, the kids, it's time for them to go. Fred Savage doesn't want to turn into a monster and they end up traveling. Now, I love this part. This is actually a part where I this was adventures. This was like Goonies, Mm -hmm. you know, kids going on an adventure where they're running from time zone to time zone until they finally get to Malibu before the sun rises. And you know what? It could teach kids about uh, time zones. (laughs) We got some education in this. One, don't piss in an apple juice bottle. And two, time zones. We're learning. I thought this section was just a delight. I just thought yeah. it was so fun. <laughs> I know. I love the end, like where they're running to do that. And then he gives them the jacket at the end. I That was cool. I was like, okay, that that's what you got to tie into a little bit more. Now, I love this as a weird, you know, early 90s film. Like, it's a juicy treat here. This is, you know, just this is like pizza found on top of the garbage pile. Still edible. Uh-huh. Everything's great. And it's still trash. <laughs> <laughs> but uh as a, as a whole no they did a bad job with some of this but like i said as a trash movie nom 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 i think for me like i i i just really like this movie i i never really had a connection with it like a nostalgia thing i i'd seen it and i knew i liked it then but i never followed up too much with it uh but like watching it now i just really enjoyed it i, I liked all the imagination of it i loved all the creatures I loved uh, the look of the movie. I think the director did a really good job. Yeah, I just like the creativity in general that all went into this that we just don't see in movies today was really refreshing and fun. Yes, it's a little sloppy. Feels like there's scenes missing and things like that. Uh, And the Howie Mandel performance is a little bit much for sure. (laughs) But I guess I have a high tolerance for that shit. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I really liked it. And I, as an adult, like not without any nostalgia to it, I really enjoy watching it now, even though it's not perfect. Did you see the gang of Terry Russo and uh, Ted Elliott wrote this? Yes. Pirates of the Caribbean uh, team is the mm. and this was their this was like one of their breakout movies, too. That shocks me. Right when I saw that, you know, like Aladdin's on their credits that had a lot of adult jokes, too. But I think someone was smart enough to be like, okay, we'll throw this one out. We'll keep this one. We'll tone this one down a little bit. With this one, I think it was just like, you know what? We love all your jokes. Keep them in. All this dark shit, going in. <laughs> and then, because it was done by like more of a visual effects crew. And, you know, the actual director was visual. I wonder if there wasn't enough producers or kind of people to go through and filter the story if that had something to do with how dark this got or if they were just like, fuck it, we're going to do an adult film in our kids movie. I think they just wanted to make they, you know, obviously the effects were the, the star here. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, Fred Savage, huge at the time and Howie Mandel blowing up, you know, taking off. But I think the stars of the movie were the effects. And I really think what the filmmakers were intending to do. I don't know this. Like, this is just like a guess. Uh, the, I think they were just trying to make like a kid's movie where kids, you know, weren't being pandered to and could be a little scared, you know, was it was a horror comedy for kids. I think that was the intent. I mean, like like you said, nobody really told them to slow down a little bit or, you know, maybe not make it so dirty. But like, I, I think the intent was like, let's make a horror comedy for kids. Yeah. And before we get into the museum, I mean, last words on this and do you recommend it? Matt, I'll let you go first. And I want to put too much pressure on Scott, the guest. <laughs> Yeah, all I would say besides what I just said is I recommend it. It's a soft recommend, uh, mostly for the visuals and for the like tasty treat of being trash of the early 90s. But I don't think a lot of people will like this outside of the, you know, the weirdos, you and I. Our listeners will yeah, like Yeah, our, our <laughs> listeners will, but not all of our listeners, I think, are quite... Well, maybe they are. I don't know. Go ahead. Go watch it. It's it's good for the visuals. <laughs> coming from a just a different perspective on it i i definitely recommend it especially now i think it holds having just rewatched it and not having seen it for quite some time the story i just love the story uh it is everything growing up when you're when you're just a a kid playing with your toys and having this imagination it you just fall right back into it watching this movie and they did such a beautiful job of the the underworld and or the monster world whatever not underworld i guess it sounds bad but they did such a beautiful job of the set design and you know when you when you're a kid 
you're always afraid of the monsters under the bed and 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 to build a whole world from that it's just so cool and it still holds up watching it today to this day i think it still holds up just fine and yeah i mean you know it's you guys touched up on there's a lot of flaws in it but you know if you haven't seen it before give it a shot you know it's you know the era it came from so you know always have an open mind when you're watching those things and i was telling you guys before we jumped on i just i just watched witches for the first time and it came from a similar era and a great another movie that's you know a cult a cult following i believe correct me if i'm wrong on that no witches definitely has a cult Huge following. Yeah. Okay, yes. And, and, and it kind of, it has that feeling of it too. And so going into that, you know, obviously when you're going to watch an older movie, you got to be a little more open to it. Obviously the effects are going to be practical and it's going to be some cheesiness involved, but I just love this movie. Uh, and I, I definitely recommend it. Uh, beautiful visuals, beautiful uh, design and uh, a great story as well. Oh, definitely. The visuals hold up really, really well. I think, you know, the team of Beetlejuice behind this and whomever else they brought in. I mean, that's kind of like, in my opinion, the highlight is some of the effects that they mm-hmm. pulled off in this. Like the clothes, the talking clothes. And you said they someone did a commercial and they used them. That's some of the stuff where I that's what I'll always remember from this film. The chaotic, like dark stuff. Howie Mandel going nuts and those talking clothes. <laughs> It was just weird and fun to look at. Yeah, it's just creative. This movie is just like creative. And I just, you know, it feels like a celebration of that. It's like, let's do a bunch of effects. Let's have this crazy story. It's like, what is under the bed, you know? And, uh, you know, the the world of like going from the monster world back up to the kid's world and everything like that. It's, it's, it's a childlike imagination that this movie has come from. And with that, like, imagination and creativity, it's like infectious. You watch it, and you're just like, Yes, like it, it invigorates you because it's just it's imaginative. It it, it lights you up a little bit. So I, I think that's I think that it is a testament to why this became a cult classic. I think it's that creativity that took it over the finish line. Yep. Agreed. All right. Let's go on to the museum. This is the second time I've had to reclaim my property from you. That belongs in a museum. So do you. This is the part of the show where we go out in the film jungle like Indy and bring something back. Good or bad. What's going into our family fun time holiday special November marathon? <laughs> I don't know what we're calling this, but that's you know. exactly what we're calling it. Yeah, <laughs> it's a really long title. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'll let Scott, the guest, go first on this. Good or bad? What stuck out to you? What are you putting in our wing of the museum? Okay, so I'm going to do something that's a little little obscure, I guess, you, if you'd want to call it. No no rules. My favorite, and I, I told you guys this prior, my my favorite scene is when we actually first meet uh, Howie Mand- or Maurice, um, and he's all spazzy and all that, but he, there, there's a scene where he is – you know, the very first thing he's, he sees baseball cards. I love baseball cards. Need him, need him, need him. Got him, got him, got him. Want him, want him, need him. You know, and uh, every time, even as, as a kid, I love that scene. I cracks me up. I want to put in the baseball card that is, there's a specific baseball card that he's points out and it refers to. And I'd like to put that in, if that's cool. Yeah. What's who's on the baseball card? Uh, it is an unknown and Steve and I are huge baseball fans, um, but it's a it's a. So I immediately I asked, like, <laughs> yeah. who is it? <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's a Blue Jays player. I mean, there's a ton of them, but there's one very notable one behind, right next to Ben Savage's head, and it's a Blue Jay player named Mark Icon, E I C H H O R N, and I I'd like to put that in there because as a kid growing up loving baseball and then seeing this scene, loving that scene. I always couldn't tell, think, thanks to the internet these days, you know, back then didn't have that to our, at, at, at our access. I now know it's Mark Icorn, and I've never heard of him. So um, I'd like to put that in. Probably a bench player. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. So an obscure, it's an obscure one, but this this one, because it is a nostalgia for me, that scene is is like one of the more famous scenes that, that made me love the movie, and I laugh every time I see it, so I'd like to put that in there. By the way, I found him. 
He had a win-loss record of 48 and 43 with an earned run average in his career of three. He was actually a good reliever. Hey, all or, right. Or possibly starter. I don't know. I've you know, I don't have the back of his baseball cards, but yeah. No shit. Learning so much about time zones and pitchers for the Toronto Blue Jays. <laughs> I I already kind of spoiled mine. I'm putting in the clothes. That scene where he melts and then the clothes kind of come alive and you know, he pushes him under the bed and I think they even let it smoke for a while. I don't know how they did that. I really don't. I'm sure it's like wires inside of it with some, you know, robotic animatronics, whatever they use. But that was a marvel to me. I was looking at that. That's nuts. It's short, but that's what I got. How about you, Matt? <laughs> There's so much to like uh, effects wise and stuff like that. So I don't want to put in just like all the effects because that's too easy. But one of my favorite effects in general, if we're going to talk specifics and stuff, one of my favorite effects is also early on. And it's when he has the eyes come out of his head and they look like uh, lobster eyes. And when he when he said, I think it's like the first sort of thing Maurice does supernaturally or whatever it is, eyes come flying out of his head. It's like very like Drop Dead Fred and Feel Juicy and stuff like that. I love the way those like eyes wiggle in the air and stuff like that. So I really like that effect specifically. But I guess the the overall of that is like, yeah, the, inf- the effects are incredible in this movie. But that's like one of my favorite ones. So I'm going to put that. You know, that's actually a good comparison movie, too, is Drop Dead Fred, which I think came out somewhere in the mid-90s. 91. Oh, wow. It was that long. Okay. I thought it was more like 95. No, it was earlier. So, again, it's 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 just plugged in. It's like I was saying, like, with the Home Alones and the Monster Squads, and it's, like, just plugged into this is right at this time. Just <laughs> of this. We were into this stuff at this time, I guess. <laughs> it, it reminds me, too, of uh, when... You had your string of disaster movies like Dante's Peak and Volcano came out at the same time. Deep Impact and Armageddon came out at the same time. I feel like there's there's a couple times in, in the last, you know, what, 30, 40 years where you probably more than that. It seems that this happens frequently with a string of movies. Oh, yeah. It's it's Hollywood capitalizing on someone else's success. So I'm pretty yeah. sure when Pee Wee came out. You know, you had WB then doing Beetlejuice and you get Vestron doing Little Monsters at the same time. And then, yeah, maybe another company is like, oh, well, we've got a comedian, a, a British comedian. We'll put him in our Drop Dead Fred. I think he's British, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or Australian or something. Australian, yeah. yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I think it is. I, I think they get wind of these in the production studios. You know, one producer says something to another one at the bar. And before you know it, you've got a bunch of. I don't want to quite call them copycats where it's more like a bunch of them had scripts on the shelves that they had bought and they're like, fuck it, let's do it. Because what you can do is when you put it out in home video, you know, if a kid goes there and he goes, oh, Beetlejuice is out. And you're like, yeah, but you got little monsters over here. That's kind of like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. You kind of get this not quite little brother effect, but whatever it is, you know, you've got your they're not clones of the other ones, you know. You know, that's more of other companies specializes in that. But yeah, I could see that kind of just like branching off of oh, if they're going to do it. We're going to do one like that, too. I was going to say so many people are involved in movies that to keep everyone silent. So to your point, Steve, yeah, totally. Everyone knows everybody in the industry, right? It's one of those type things. And, you know, someone's going to be talking or have some drinks and spill the beans and whatnot so i'm mean, tim burton's working on this crazy character and blah blah blah. you know so yeah i, I that's exactly how, mm-hmm. how this stuff happens yeah we, we even talked about it in the beetlejuice episode that we just did that uh what a fun wave to be caught in because that just meant that all these movies were super creative you know like it just it meant that like we had all these creatures and we had all these monsters and we had these worlds that were built and stuff like that and we talk about it like sort of the Tim Burton effect and how it rippled through to like superhero movies with the mask and like uh, Adam's family and stuff like that. Like with, with Beetlejuice affecting, you know, like the little monsters and the drop dead breads and toys and those kind of movies that came out in the early nineties. What a fun wave. Cause it just meant that all the movies were super imaginative and creative. We're so mm-hmm. lucky that we like caught that wave uh, as film fans. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we got the way. I mean, Adam's Family and Beetlejuice are kind of like the, mm-hmm. you know, the two top for me. But yeah, there was a lot of these little films coming off the success of those or, you know, that were just trying to follow that kind of same line of thought. It was a fun time. The early 90s had some great stuff when you were a kid. It really did. Yeah. 
All right, that is going to end it this week for our, you know, look at November fun time movies that weirdos watch during the holidays. Okay, is that the, <laughs> that's the next title. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just, every time, new title. Yes. Uh, so we'll just keep going. Someone write them all down for us and then uh, <laughs> let me know how stupid I sound. <laughs> and we'll bring it back every November then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a fun time. Thanks for coming on, Scott. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for thanks for inviting me again. It's it's fun. This is fun. Yeah, it was super super fun to have you. And good luck with your little baby coming out into the world. Oh yeah, two weeks. Oh boy. You can uh, watch all these old movies from when you were a kid and fall asleep during them. There you go. <laughs> good luck, buddy. I you know it's awesome. Uh, I'm happy for you. Thanks. I appreciate it. All right. Next week we'll come back with another one. We're not going to tell you what it is, but trust me, if you were us, you watch this shit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, next week is a pretty loony, you know, episode. So come back for that. And remember to be kind. Everyone.